Our community has great needs and often is not recognized for having those needs. It's a lot of stereotype that the gay community has plenty of money. And, you know, there is a sector, like there is a sector in probably every population, but that does. But that is not the majority of our community. All research shows that is a stereotype, and it certainly isn't true for the women, the lesbian, bi, Q women in our community, trans women in our community, because they have often have double barriers of being women and also being part of the LGBTIQ community, and certainly our communities of color. Welcome to Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. In 1974, in San Francisco, the Golden Gate Business Association is founded as the world's first chamber of commerce for and by LGBTQIA entrepreneurs. With members across the Bay Area, the chamber quickly becomes the voice of the LGBTQIA community and a rallying point for queer business owners. A few years later, in 1981, the Greater Seattle Business Association is incorporated and in one year grows to 150 members. In 1990, the GSBA creates the first LGBT and allied scholarship fund in the U.S. and to date, that fund has surpassed $5 million in educational support. The Chamber also takes on a leading role in advocating for same-sex domestic partnership laws, which, after a long legal battle, led to the historic passage of Washington State's marriage equality law in 2012. Today, the GSBA serves over 1,400 members across Washington state and is connected across the U.S. as a founding member of the NGLCC, the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. The GSBA in many ways redefined what a business chamber can be by not only promoting business, but also advocating for equality and diversity in the workforce, as well as for social action to expand economic opportunities and collaboration inside and outside the LGBTQIA community. For two decades, Louise Chernin acted as CEO and grew the association to be the largest LGBTQIA business chamber in the U.S. and possibly the world. Louise's visionary leadership positioned the community as a force for broader action on equity and as a steadfast counterpart to corporations and politicians working towards equality for all. I've had the great fortune of knowing Louise for some time now as a mentor and as a friend and I was delighted to have an excuse to catch up and hear her insights as she embarks on her very active retirement. She deferred stepping away from her role as CEO of the GSBA so she could lead the organization through the pandemic. And with the energy and audacity that define her, she found more innovative ways of supporting marginalized communities through the crisis. By making possible shared value partnerships uniting small businesses, corporations, and government, she once again transformed the Chamber's role to deliver help where it was most needed. Well, interestingly enough, before that, I worked for the National Organization for Women. I was a single parent at the time with two children and making very little money. And um, so it started out, one of my members said, you need to work for more money. And I said, well, I only like nonprofits. So ended up her daughter was starting a, a for-profit to manage nonprofits because we were an association management firm. We managed about 22 nonprofit professional associations. And uh, so GSBA came to us in 92, and then I became their ex account executive. After a number of years, they said, we want to have an independent office and asked if I would join them as their executive, at the time, executive director. 
you know, it was a much smaller organization at the time. And that was it. So we ended up opening an office uh, on Capitol Hill, which is historically and culturally Seattle's LGBTIQ neighborhood. And um, we grew from this little networking group into a pretty major chamber of commerce and a scholarship fund. Well, and in fact, it, it is North America's largest chamber, is it not? It is. We even think it might be the largest in the world, but we don't want to sound too arrogant. But <laughs> <laughs> I recognize you there, always modest. What do you think the role of the GSBA was and now is as the world has changed? Well, I think originally it was for LGBT. IQ people to recognize each other and each other's business and support each other. And I think a lot of um, underrepresented, marginalized communities often do business with each other. That's how they survive is, you know, whether it's the black community, the Asian community, the Jewish community, the gay community. Uh, and so that's what it started at is, you know, it's, I mean, the, the whole chamber movement started with Harvey Milk in, in San Francisco, but we were very early on, I think third third chamber to start. So it was really to meet each other, identify each other, and support each other. So really, a lot of it was networking. It was all about networking, exchanging those business cards, and staying loyal to each other. And that loyalty has remained, I think, through it, throughout it. But um, now I think it includes our allies. And I think we've gone from really doing networking to starting to do some business development for our small business members who I believe now is a real um, economic development organization. Um, and at least with GSBA, we have changed dramatically, especially it even started before the pandemic, but during the pandemic especially is, are we just for members? No, the community needs something wider than that. And what is what do, people, what do our small businesses need? They need technical support, they need coaching, and they need money. And so we just started, you know, I mean, the federal government in the United States at least was giving out these various grants and payroll protection plans and what have you. But we also knew there was a need for cash for the smallest, the micro businesses that didn't apply for a lot of things, don't even know how to apply for anything. And so uh, we started raising money from sponsors and giving it out. We have given out over $400,000 in the last couple of less than two years, two businesses, a very low barrier, one page, I need this, this or whatever, and we give you get you a check. Um, no reporting back to us was necessary. Uh, but what we did offer in addition was a membership in GSBA and a coach, a business coach, somebody we could call, you could call, and people to help you fill out applications for grants and, and um, other forms of, uh, you know, financial support. So that has really taken over uh, being a grant maker, which is not something we ever were, and not limiting it to members, focusing on LGBTIQ communities of color, including LGBTIQ communities of color, uh, women-owned businesses, and then not just Seattle, but an anywhere. So as we raised more money, we just looked at what communities needed the most. And then with our scholarship fund, the same, recognizing students didn't just need a scholarship, but they needed emergency funds for food, help with rent, and scholarships, especially with donors, don't often allow you to have that kind. Of, so we just started raising money for emergency grants as well. So in the last few years, we're, we're really, I think, providing a lot of stability in the community and an opportunity for underserved communities to reach out to us and uh, to be really part of that economic 
support and development. So I find that very exciting, but. Well, absolutely. And you have had strong ties with corporate America for a long time with the GSBA. You really developed that um, quite, quite early on, if I recall. Tell me about that and this model that you developed where you were able to get sponsorship to then, in essence, re- redistribute it. H- how did that model come about and, and the role that corporate America can play? Right. You know, originally, of course, when we very started, we didn't have any corporate support. And the early corporate support for most LGBTIQ chambers was in, from the alcohol industry. You know, you get beer companies and vodka, absolute vodka and what have you. And, you know, they knew that our uh, community would be loyal to them. And so they started supporting things. But then I think as the world changed, as corporations started realizing that if they were not going to um, invest back in communities, they were not going to be supported, that there were many communities that were starting to make decisions about where to put their dollars And so they've been looking, and I think uh, LGBTIQ chambers started saying, okay, you know, let's work together. You need to demonstrate that you have a commitment to equality and equity, and we are that vehicle. Because, but you can't just put, give us money and put your logo. We want to see some changes. So for a long time, those changes were about employment policies. Um, You know, did you recognize um, same-sex partners? And what kind of health benefits? Uh, and what kind of a workplace culture did you have to welcome people of all different backgrounds? So I think that, you know, and over the years, we really developed that. And we were pretty uh, clear in um, talking to our corporate sponsors, getting to know them well, and talking about changes within their corporations that they needed, doing trainings on having inclusive cultures. Uh, and that continued deepening, I think, over the years. So when we saw a need, uh, we mentioned it, and the the first company that invested in our Ready for Business program, we call it, was Comcast, is Comcast. And we, you know, had a great relationship with them and said, you know, this is what small businesses really need. And I think corporations want to do something like that. They want to be seen as, you know, um, some people say socially responsible. But we would like to say, but you won't even be economically successful if you don't change with the world. The world is no longer just solely controlled by, you know, white, straight men. Uh, you, you, if you want your customer base and your employee base uh, to be representative of the community that you live in so you can be successful, you need to be part of that community. So they heard that. I mean, they're a very successful corporation. They're part of NBC Universal. And so they said, okay. And, you know, I think they originally, can't remember, it was like $50,000. Uh, that they pledged to us. And from there, we started to say things to other corporations. You know, Comcast is giving, and we're just giving this out. And they'd say, well, I want to be a part of that. I mean, because it was, and then we eventually even asked individuals if you'd like to make a donation. Um, We took it through our C3 arms so that people could get a tax write-off, but I don't think that was much of a, you know, it's a nice little extra thing. I think people were feeling so frustrated and scared during the, especially the beginning of the pandemic, seeing small businesses close everywhere, that people wanted to figure out how can I save my neighborhood business? You know, we've always said small business is the backbone of, of, of communities, of the economy, but I don't think we ever realized how true it was until the pandemic. 
when as small businesses closed, literally the economy was just closing down. It wasn't because of corporations. They had enough resources and they could do everything remotely. But the small business, most of them in hospitality, especially um, or healthcare, you needed to be there in person, regardless of what was going on. And so, you know, it, we didn't give the same kind of money you could get from very large corporate grants, but it was an easy, no strings attached. So maybe we helped you reprint your uh, menus. Maybe you could buy laptops for your employees, whatever it took. But those little things that were just, you know, replace a plate glass window that had been broken or graffitied over because there was so much social unrest in the, in the communities. It was during the height of the racial reckoning that we're all uh, hopefully still dealing with. Um, but there was a lot of anger on all sides and a lot of demonstrations, especially in Seattle. So I think we became a more positive solution. Who wouldn't want to feel you could do something during that time of frustration and fear? The collaboration we do is really important and sets the stage when there are times of trouble that the for-profit and the not-for-profit can be, you know, working together. And, you know, in government entities, we started getting calls from the Department of Commerce saying, you know, we have to give out this money, but the truth is we don't have enough staff to give it out and to provide support. But there are all these business organizations that can do that for us. So we started getting grants to provide technical support for small businesses around the state. But really, how do you do that? Because let's be honest, what you've just described is is fairly unique. I'd say really unique to, to have the ability to, as you said, listen, see what's happening and make those changes that quickly to be able to deliver the community. You also mentioned, obviously, resting on the strength of your partnerships. What is your advice there of, of how you build those strong ties that enable that type of collaboration? Well, you know, I think it's to really look at what does it mean to have a relationship? And I think when other agencies, whether it be chambers, other business organizations, nonprofits, they, they look at, for example, corporations as an opportunity to get money. Oh, you have more money and you'll give it to me. Well, people don't just do that. Nobody writes anybody a check. So you really have to say, who, first of all, what corporations, what are their values? What, which are the corporations that want to be known as progressive and caring? Do they care about education? Do they care about small business? Do they care about the arts? Do they care about the environment? You have to you really do have to think about how do you match your values up? And then who do you contact in that agency? Um, are you contacting marketing? Are you contacting their diversity, equity, inclusion department? What is it they're looking for? They're looking to demonstrate they support equality, support small business. So I'm very strategic in that. I do, I do think about the corporations. I look up their value statements. I look up, you know, what it is and then who. So figuring out who in the company, what are the company's values, and then start setting up conversations. Eventually you get invited. You know, our employee group is having a discussion. Would you like to come and, and have a conversation uh, facilitate, which we were really happy to do. Or we did something on corporate culture and we invited, instead of inviting our members from those corporations, we invited their HR personnel. How can we help you ensure that your HR policies are inclusive. So again, really looking at all the parts of a relationship you can have. Um, is it around supplier diversity? Is it around, you know, culture in the in the company? And, and how can we have? And so some of these have taken a long time, but then other new, new companies hear about you. It 
goes faster because they know you already have a reputation of, of listening, of caring, of forming relationships. I mean, you know, I have over the years, we'd call up a corporation. I'd see something pretty negative about them on something. And I call them up and say, what is this about? And have them do some more research in their company. We have, uh, I really believe we have influence and in changes of policy or how things are presented. Um, you know, now there's a big movement around corporations and our community, but probably other communities, that they do very good things for their employees in terms of policy, but they still support elected official candidates that vote that perhaps against the community. And I think there's now a new push to say uh, you can't have it both ways. How how are you doing that? They're doing it because they're looking at self-interest around are those candidates on, in, in, if it's government candidates, are they uh, in a committee that is about, a, you know, funding or tax reform or what have you? They really don't usually look at if the candidate is around civil rights or social justice. But we're saying, well, you need to. You need to. I think too many small business groups, it's hard for them to think differently. And one way you start getting them to think differently is you also have to bring on board members that think differently. Board members should be about long-range strategic planning and where do you want to be and what's the impact you want to have. So, you know, you're working on all, even to get to that corporate gift, you are working in so many different ways. And then those relationships get deeper and deeper. So you, you really are touching on the fact that it really is all about people and relationships at all different levels. And I'm curious with a lot of the tensions in the U.S. right now around trans visibility and uh, restricting access to gender affirming care for youth in different states. Is there any other way that you can think of in those collaborations that you have where there's a way to prevent these kinds of extreme steps backwards? Right. Well, I think I think social pressure is is occurring and doing that. I mean, look how many corporations in some of the southern uh, states in the United States started saying that they will remove, you know, their football games, the NFL won't come there or what have you. So, when corporations start you know, using their muscle uh, about removing business, whether it's their corporate headquarters, whether it's their bringing in entertainment or sports to uh, to a community. Um, I think they've made, I think they have made some changes. However, uh, for a while, I think that was really working. And I think it is weakened because at least in the United States, but I think that is true globally right now. There is a very con strong conservative movement that is really against equity for almost any marginalized group in terms of power and in terms of a threat to democracy. So when you don't have democracy, I think it'll affect all these things uh, because there is no need now to be uh, accepted or seen as a certain type of corporation. Now, we're lucky in Seattle. Uh, many of our corporate members that are home here, Starbucks, Microsoft, Amazon, they do still have a close relationship with the communities in which they are. And there is a movement now to unionize in many, I think, both Canada and the United States. I don't know about other countries uh, where even in these corporations that have some good social policies, there are people say, but you are making huge, huge amounts of money. And you're not sharing it in the way you should be with your employees. You're not making their world a, a better. Yes, you 
probably pay more than some. And you're not sweatshops necessarily, um, but you're still you're making billions at a really difficult time. And you need to be giving that back, whether it's pay, whether it's benefits, whether quality of life issues, time off. So I think that's, you know, the rise of unions at a time when there's also an attack on democracy, I think is very interesting. It used to be when some of the large corporations had good policies, they only had them in the country, like in the United States or Canada. They would go into um, the global south, for example, and they would treat their home-based employees a certain way. And it's not that they they didn't feel the same about the local employees from those countries or challenge the human rights in the in those countries. And I think that has gained some momentum, at least for the employee aspect. It's like the pandemic showed the importance of the small business. It also showed the fragility of the supply chain. And I think I don't think anybody predicted that that when things shut down, whether it's in China or other places and you can't make parts for cars, for computers and what have you, everything starts shutting down. So it's, um, it is amazing how connected we all are now. Well, I think there's certainly a, a thread running through our conversation around connectedness and, and relationships and, and how we can't exist separate from each other. We talked about small business. We st- talked about corporations. A lot of folks turned to self-employment uh, or entrepreneurship during the pandemic. What is your thought there around the barriers that still exist for LGBTIQ entrepreneurs? Do, do you still see that as a train that's more fraught for queer entrepreneurs than, than others? I think so, depending on where you are. I think um, what community you live in makes a big difference. And then who you are in part of the LGBTIQ community. Are you a woman? Are you a woman identified? Are you trans? Are you a person of color in addition? How conservative is the community you live in? I mean, becoming an entrepreneur for a minority community is nothing new. You know, that's as old as small businesses. When you don't feel accepted uh, to apply for jobs or how you're treated when you're at a job, you, you leave and you start your own business. That's why there are so many communities of color that have their own businesses or so many minority religious people or people immigrate as refugees or immigrants to a community and they don't yet have the language ability of that community or something else. They start their own business. And so it's, it's always interesting to see that. But for our community, um, I do think that if you're in a conservative area, it is very hard to start a business as an LGBTIQ person. I think you are targeted. I think you experience a lot of violence and attack. I'm not sure you get the same access to uh, credit and to loans. I think even in in Washington, in the United States, it's a very progressive community and state, but in eastern Washington, it's less so, and it's still pretty hard. I mean, that's where some of the cases are where people don't want to serve you or don't want to have your business. Um, So I think that that hasn't changed in certain areas and now with the backlash and the new um new anti-trans bills anti-lgbtiq bills we still haven't been able to pass an equality act federally outlawing uh, marriage equality um, you know we've made progress in many countries but we've also seen a huge backlash in other countries um so yeah i do i do think so and that's where you go back to that loyalty but your own community will be there to support you. And I think we go out of our way more and more 
when we hear something is owned by uh, an LGBTIQ person to be able to say, you need to go there. You need to, you know, I mean, during the pandemic, we were sending each other, did you buy gift certificates? Did you do this? Are you getting, you know, food delivered to your house? Pick it up. They don't have place. They don't have a, they're not with DoorDash or what have you. Um, and so, you know, I think we go back to helping ourselves and I don't believe there's any community that helps each other more than the LGBTIQ community. I mean, perhaps we learned that during the AIDS epidemic. We do know that when people don't take care of us, we will take care of ourselves. We have that inner strength and that love and loyalty for each other. And that's what gets us through. I love that. And certainly to your point, the pandemic, I think, brought out that our local businesses are a strong part of the fabric of our communities and and that we can't just think they're going to always going to be there if we don't give back and, and show up. You sit on the board of Outright Action International. You're uh, on the board of trustees of, of Seattle Colleges. What do you think the role of not-for-profits, do you think they have a specific role in this moment in time? Well, nonprofits do a lot. I mean, they've always picked up the slack. Whenever governments roll back support for people, safety net support for people. It is the nonprofit that picks that up. And over the years, they've picked up, you know, running cold communities. They're also an incredible employer. I mean, you know, they are business. No matter what people want to say, they are business with a purpose. They are business with a, um, a commitment to give back. But they, the amount of people they employ, the amount of products they buy, is incredible. Just just think about hospitals and large schools and what have you, but even small businesses. They buy furniture, they buy computers, they buy desks, they pay for health insurance for their employees. You know, all the things that a business does, a nonprofit does, just with a different motive. So they are so an essential part of a community uh, that, you know, I don't think communities could really function if they didn't have the nonprofits that were there to provide, whether it's mental health care and supporting the arts, being part of the arts organizations, and the you know from film to choruses to theater, food banks. So I'm thinking, I just remember years and years ago, we are there to really make sure a community remembers that we need to take care of people, we need to provide services, and whether we live in a country that doesn't have social security or old age plans or doesn't have universal health, it is your nonprofits that pick that up. So we do see a hybridization in a way of, and maybe that's too strong a word because I don't think that it's a done deal yet, but certainly with a lot of the examples that you've given corporations realizing that they need to show up in their communities, the third sector running like a business. What's what's your hope? Do you, do you see that movement accelerating are we headed in the right direction with that, um, where there is more collaboration between sectors to support people and to realize that interconnectedness that we've been talking about throughout this conversation? You know, I think it's hard to know at this time, but I think so. I mean, I, I think in the end, collaboration and connection is really some of the most important um, values that we have. Because without it, I don't know how you survive without it. We're, we are, the globe is one community now with, uh, with whether it's currency, whether it's jobs, whether it's, you know, protections, whether uh, climate change, you know, there are no borders for these things. And, um, and one part of, you know, what government cannot work without business, business cannot work without government, all of 
both those sectors need certainly the nonprofit world to be a partner in that. And um, I think that's why even when the government started giving businesses some protections during the the height of the pandemic, um, they included nonprofits. They didn't at first. And at first they didn't include the business organizations at least in the United States. And then they realized, oh my goodness, if they go out, they won't be helping all those small businesses that we're trying to help, but we can't even reach. So uh, the interconnectedness of the sectors has never been clearer. And um, so again, these are the things you want to be hopeful about. And I do think we, we talk to each other a little bit more you know, corporations and nonprofit used to be pretty separate. Nonprofit and government entities were pretty separate. And now uh, I think there's way more partnerships. And um, and I think we have to continue to strengthen that around the globe. Um, and I think the nonprofit and the small business sector, I just think, especially in countries where there are not major corporations that are there employing large numbers of people, but the nonprofit can be there to either access some of that, those resources from corporations or governments, or provide the direct support itself. Now, with Outright International, we don't go in and do the work in other countries, but we do support civil society organizations there to help strengthen them to do the work, whether it's the underground movement, whether it's supporting all the different parts of the nonprofit world that are there already uh, to, to reach out and help strengthened through resources and information is just very, very important, which is why I love GSBA because it it had both parts, being a small business as well as being able to support students, being a part of a community and connecting the large and small business together is, is really important because I think the large corporations have now recognized that it is the small businesses that buy from them. And that, you know, they have to be supporting each other. If they if they put every small business out of business, it would threaten them as well. We talked about our community as a whole, and you also talked about the specificities within our community. How do you think we can do a better job as leaders of organizations, let's say? What has been your experience in enabling that co-creation so that we can reach more people in the diversity of our communities? Well, I think it's a responsibility um, for communities. You know, when this latest wave of racial reckoning happened, I think we talked about systems and system change. And I think all of the nonprofits have to change as well. Who is on their board? Who who makes up their staff? Who are their allies? And uh, so, for example, with GSBA saying, we're not just going to raise money and benefit our members, but where is the need greatest in the community? And once you start doing that, then you start forming, you know, just like we talked the story, forming relationships with corporations, you start forming relationships with other communities. And you realize, of course, you know, we have plenty of our people in every community because we are everywhere. And I think it's the same with Outright. Um, we have staff in many countries that are from those countries and that and they're on the ground looking what are the needs and what are the organizations that need support there. And so the more relationships you have when you're seen as an ally and not trying to be just the leader strengthens the relationship and grows the trust. 
I mean, diversity feeds itself. When your board starts looking differently and your staff starts looking differently, of course, this causes, by the way, uh, we all know that, lots of tension too. Because when you start working with different people who you didn't all think the same, you're going to have tensions and conflicts. But I think it's conflict for good change, I hope. I do believe that in some ways this latest movement around equality and equity is, is less siloed than it was in the 60s when you had a women's movement and a gay rights movement, you know, a civil rights. I mean, you know, but now people understand we need to all be working at change, that uh, the structures we had set up were created to exclude people. And the more we can challenge them and break them down, it'll be a messy time. Uh, I don't think it's easy, but I do think it's more hopeful that we're actually addressing some things more at the root than Band-Aids. Is that what gives you hope then, personally? It does. People always say, I mean, when everybody always says, this is the worst time, I always say, this isn't the worst time. The history of the world, it's got a lot of bad times in it. Well, what keeps you going? Well, what keeps me going is hope. And I do believe you cannot be an activist if you didn't have hope. Why would you spend your time and energy if on some level, even if you have a lot of anger, is because you have hope? Plus, you get to surround yourself with the best people in the world. So you also have joy. Louise Trennan is an activist, an LGBTQIA business and community leader, and the former CEO of the Greater Seattle Business Association. She is based in Seattle in the United States. This is Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. Design Influence is brought to you by the Protagonist Network, a community of global impact-driven entrepreneurs learning and growing together. To build the new economy, they're using design-led trainings and tools and innovating cross-borders. For details on programming, head to protagonistnetwork.com.